Warning, this episode contains absolutely no discussion about pastries. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, episode 27, I speak with Sam Mustafa about the state of historical wargaming in the United States. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Kings Hobbies and Games and Special Artisan Service Miniatures. As you are well aware, uh, Special Artisan Service Miniatures uh, is doing just some crazy stuff these days. In particular, this month, it's a good month for Tim because, first off, he painted a vignette that is being featured on the cover of Wargame Soldiers and Strategy Magazine, issue number 93. Uh, keep your eyes open for that issue wherever you normally buy Wargame Soldiers and Strategy. And additionally, he's released a new uh, special operator set. It's a German Commando kayak team. Uh, it's pretty neat. It's got a resin cast kayak, three operators, and four pieces of stowage. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complete kit right out of the box for uh, riverine missions or even uh, literal missions. So keep your eye open for that. Uh, take a look at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. I'm joined today by Sam Mustafa of Sam Mustafa Publishing, LLC, a publisher of the Fine Honor series of Game Rules. Uh, Sam, how are you doing today? Hi, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I've i really been wanting to talk to you for some time now. Early on in the history of the Veteran Wargamer, you took the time to comment on a message thread on Google+, Plus of all places, about the state of gaming in the United States. It's something I had brought up in a previous episode, and I'll have that one in the... Sh- I'll have the episode in the show notes. And I've wanted to talk further on this topic with you and we're now getting that opportunity and I appreciate you coming on just like with all of our other guests first time that you're on uh, we want to find out more about you so Sam what makes you a veteran wargamer hmm. well let's see I, I turn 52 next week and um, I think four-fifths of that lifetime has been spent as a gamer so in one form mm-hmm. or another so I guess I'm, I'm as veteran as they get I mean only only Spartan children would be more veteran than that at, at, at this age um, I've done I started in board gaming you know the old Avalon Hill and SBI board games I did uh, role-playing as a teen got into miniatures in my 20s um, got into game designing pretty young and then um, began to sell my games in my 20s at first just um, kind of impromptu you know you know dot matrix printer and staple in the middle and stuff like that and then uh, in the early 2000s I began to do it professionally okay. so early 2000s is when you started Sam Mustafa publishing then sort of um, the first game that uh, really kind of brought me to attention worldwide was called Grand Armée and that was published by Dave Waxtell of uh, Quantum okay. Printing. He's the guy who published Artie Conliffe's games and uh, that was in 2002. Um, I did another game on my own dime called Might and Reason and then in 2009 I launched um, the the Honor trademark and um, Sam Mustafa Publishing and that was with the launch of LaSalle. 
and since then it's been almost almost okay. one game per year. All right. Now one one title of yours that's kind of a kind of divergent, and we're not going to talk about your games necessarily uh, in this discussion. But I did want to mention Free Jumpers, which I when yeah. you had that when you had that appeal for folks to purchase your products, and you were and you would then donate the proceeds to uh, to Hurricane Relief efforts, which I applaud you for, by the way. I went ahead and picked up Rommel, because it, it is the new hotness, and I got Free Jumper as well. And I gotta say, that's... I haven't had an opportunity to play it yet, but I really want to get it to the table, because I, I think that's got a lot of potential for... Well, f quite frankly, as a convention game. Yeah, it, it's so much fun. It, it's sort of an orphan in my in my lineup. I mean, I, I think there's maybe a few dozen people around the world who play it anything like regularly. Um, but it's it's a perfect one hour little game, you know. Mm -hmm. And you need exactly one miniature and uh, a handful of cards. Um, it just I wanted to do a spaceship game that was very different from the other spaceship games. I, I didn't want to do the standard issue dreadnoughts in space, you know, with turrets and missiles and all that stuff. Um, so it's a little outside the box, and I'm sure that that means it's um, it's a bit too weird for some people. But you know, the ship itself is kind of a character, and the ship is intelligent. And um, yeah, I, I tried to think of what weapons might be like in a couple hundred years, and they're not. They're not your standard, um, you know, right. cruisers and dreadnoughts and things a, like that. It definitely has a feel for it where you, you know, you might be the captain of a small trade ship that may or may, or may not be inspired by a certain short-lived uh, <laughs> science fiction TV show. So, not not wishing to right. infringe upon any intellectual properties, of course, but if you happen to have a, a flying insect with a bioluminescent aspect to it, you'd be on the right track, right? <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I, I really want to get that to the table and uh, do something with it. I, I think it's got potential as a campaign game in that, or a portion of a campaign game where you're using some other system for tracking where where the different players go or whatnot, but you're doing your your ship combats fast and dirty, basically with with that system. Yeah, and your ship changes, of course. You know, as you get more money and more parts, you can clap on more parts to the ship or upgrade this or change that. Um, I wanted it to. You know, the use of cards, of course, means it's totally flexible, and you're not mm -hmm. you're not constrained by having these blueprints or these um, you know ship data sheets or whatever. Uh, I wanted it to be really flexible. Right. Yeah, and you don't need an Excel spreadsheet to to make your ship either. Right. You just need to do addition. Right. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we're not here to talk about that game or any of your games necessarily in particular. We probably need to get down to the topic at hand, which is what is the state of gaming in the United States? Now, to my mind, I think things in general are going pretty good. Um, we're spoiled for choice, just like anybody else, the rest of the world, uh, as far as the different ranges that are coming out from all the big manufacturers, both historical fantasy and sci-fi. You know, it, it's a great time to be a miniatures gamer, but it's mostly the fantasy sci-fi that's going great guns, and to a lesser degree, we sent some messages back and forth 
you're of the opinion that historical tabletop gaming and miniature is dying out. Well, I don't think it's dying out uh, in other countries. I, I just think it's dying out in the mm-hmm. U.S. Um, I, I would agree with you. And not, not, but I guess before we go into any right. sort of detail about this, we should both we, we should both do some caveats. Um, to my knowledge, there's very little in the way of hard data on these sorts right. of things. Right? I'm not aware of any kind of oh, any kind of authoritative study on exactly how many gamers there are, even how one defines what a gamer is. You know, if if I play one historical tabletop game in a year does that make me a gamer for example um so you know within the limits of what of information that we can talk about um just looking at the things anecdotally when one walks into a brick and mortar game store one sees fantasy sci-fi card games magic that that sort of thing one does not generally see um historical uh tabletop games as i did once upon a time you know 20 or 30 years ago um now, on the other hand, <clears throat> I, I, I've never been down under, um, but my experience with European, the European gaming scene and the Canadian gaming scene is that historical tabletop gaming is doing just fine. Um, and the, the people who are kind of the movers and shakers in the historical branch of this hobby tend not to be Americans. You know, they tend to be New Zealanders or Brits um, or continental Europeans or Australians. Um, and the big companies that tend to sell thousands or even tens of thousands of books or games tend to be located in those places and uh, not in the U.S. Um, publishing of hobby-based magazines right. is no longer done in the U.S. Um, and the biggest names in uh, the wargaming uh, publishing business and the wargaming media uh, tend not to be in the U.S. Yeah, I, I think the, those are all fair assessments, absolutely. And I, I think that the closest that you're going to the the closest that you're going to get uh, as far as anything like uh, a study, for lack of a better term, is is the Great Wargame Survey that Carol Wanswright does mm-hmm. every year, and and Jasper is, is still pouring through the data, as far as I know. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know how you would gauge that, like you said. Um, well, again, anecdotally, let's let's get in a time machine and go back twenty five okay. years, and you would not find any of my statements to be true, right? Twenty five years, thirty years ago, um, we can rattle off the names of the most famous historical tabletop game designers, and a good many of them are Americans. Right, you've you've got you know the the Empire series by Scott Bowden. You've got the games by Artie Conliffe. Um, you've got Taylor and Coggins who did Napoleon's Battles. Um, these are games that sold tens of thousands of copies. Um, you've got uh, journals like M1 or The Courier or um, I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, oops, whoever it is is going to hate me if they're assuming they're still alive. Um, not all these people are still with us. Um, and, and you know there were there are major companies that were new, um, that were based in the U.S. that were producing new ranges of figures, and virtually none of that is true anymore. Oh, and by the and by the way, you know attendance at the major HMGS um, conventions, if, if I'm not mistaken, reached a peak well over ten years ago. Um, on a good day, they hold steady. Um, However, the trend seems to be downward in terms of attendance. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested to talk to as many traders as I could to see how their experience on the 
with the big East Coast cons, you know, the Eastern HMGS, you know, they've, they're, they've got their big shows of Fall In, uh, Historicon, and they've got a third one that name escapes me at the moment. But uh, Cold Wars. Cold Wars, yes. Yeah. Well, again, if you look, go to uh, one of the booths of the traders at one of these conventions and, and, you know, do a sort of scan over their inventory and ask yourself how much of that inventory is produced in the United States. Yeah, that's that's interesting to take a look. And I, you're absolutely correct. First of all, first of all, there are a few caveats to that, but but yeah, I mean, you're for the most part, you're absolutely correct. There's no, I don't want to say no. There's there's not much in the way of serious development in the U.S. as far as the rules are concerned. And aside from now speaking strictly historical, of course. And aside from well, aside from PFC, CNC doing six mil stuff and GHQ mm-hmm. doing six mil stuff, then yeah, there's uh, you know, for example, my my sponsor, Special Artists and Service Miniatures, uh, Tim Spakowski, he's he's doing some stuff, some stuff, but he's not by any means a, for lack of a better term, a big player. Yeah, I mean, I I could be wrong about this. I'm happy to be wrong. This is not a diss against anybody, but I I think, I think I am. Just by virtue of being the last man standing, I think I am now the largest, um, in terms of numbers of sold, the largest U.S.-based um, tabletop game writing uh, publishing company left. Um, I sell maybe about five thousand copies a year, um, which I think makes me the the last sort of mid-sized one. That is is minuscule compared to what somebody like you know Battlefront or um, you know uh, Perry Brothers or um, you know, maybe even Two Fat Lardies. I think I think he's well over that number. Um, do um, and yet I think that makes me the biggest yeah, remaining um, in the U.S. Well, just to, as far as miniatures companies are concerned, I, I forgot to mention Brigade Games. Um, they do a pretty mm-hmm. brisk trade. They they don't have the large ranges. I mean, they sell a lot of other people's stuff too. I think we might want to backstep a little bit and let I me mean, just kind of compare and contrast how things are going in the rest of the world. Um, and I don't know if if we can necessarily compare what's going on in the rest of the world with what's going on in the United States, but what I refer to as all-in-one companies. You know, we've got a few here in the United States with uh, Fantasy Flight and Privateer Press, but they don't really do much in the way of historical, if anything. Uh, Privateer Press does nothing historical, for example. And uh, Fantasy Flight, I think, you know, they've got some historical games, but they certainly don't have any historical miniature games. Um, but as far as right. an all-in-one, you're really looking at Battlefront New Zealand's the only all-in-one historical and by all-in-one I mean they make their own figures they they write their own rules um, you know they've gone so far as to have their own paint lines uh, terrain that sort of thing well what a, what about the guys who do um who do bolt, oh, yes. bolt action yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah warlord excuse yeah. me yeah warlord is the other one warlord yeah um, and they're well they're, they're actually branched into science fiction as well um, and now I look sure. like an idiot because I've got it right here in my own show notes about Warlord. Well, there's there's a few others on the continent too, um, mm-hmm. in Spain and France, um, and I'm, I believe also we, we have to include um, uh, North Star, 
uh, as well in, in Britain. And again, he's sort of more like Brigade Games in the sense that he himself is not the author, but you know he publishes the the work of other authors as well as right. the figure lines for yeah, it. Yeah, so it's and I wonder, I wonder with the well, part of it's economic, I'm sure. Um, you know, the the dollar has been relatively strong, and couple that with the exorbitant shipping costs out of the United States. Uh, that doesn't help, yeah. you know, get American products out of America by any means. Right, that's disastrous in my case. I mean, it, it, uh, my shipping cost out of the U.S. is is double or sometimes more than double what the equivalent would be coming, mm-hmm. you know, in the opposite direction. And bear in mind, of course, that many of these destination countries also have VAT. You know, they have value-added taxes. So, um, you know, there's there's just so many disincentives for a, you know a gamer in I don't know Germany or Britain um, for example to order an American made product you know if there's not you know we can argue economics all day but the, but at the end of the day if people aren't willing to pay the money for a product then there's no incentive to develop the product in the first place true although I'm not sure it, it happened in that sequence I, mean, I could be wrong about this but um, the impression I get is that um, the people who were writing um, and publishing uh, games that had been popular in the U.S. gradually either went out of business, um, stopped publishing altogether, lost interest, or in some mm-hmm. cases, um, passed away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one that comes to mind is uh, Alan Curtis, who wrote a number of uh, Warhammer Ancient Battles supplements, mm-hmm. for example. Um, I, I had the pleasure of knowing Alan, yep. you know, long distance through you know through the internet but uh, yeah but anyway, me too. Uh, yeah it's and but at the same token by the same token there's no one stepping up to you know take their place really I mean I I gotta applaud you for doing what you do um, that there's definitely a labor of love involved there certainly you know and as an added bonus you're not just retreading the same old stuff that's been done before I mean you're you know, not to put too fine a point on it, you're coming up with new, new and interesting ways to, to push little lead figures around and roll dice. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I um, I try to be conscious of not trying to mm-hmm. um, do something that's been done. You know, unless I have a real original take on it. Uh, I, I think by this point, my antenna are, are fairly sensitive to what will right. and won't sell. Now, now I wonder at the end of the day. I hate to say this, but at the end of the day, with the volume of stuff that's coming in from overseas, thanks to a relatively strong dollar, it it helps, you know, for it to come in, or it helps cost-wise that way for us anyway, currently, but is it a matter of just strict economics, or is there something else at play? Are, Are people just becoming satisfied with what's available? And, and I hate to... I hate to mention this, but it, it almost has to. You know, a lot of people have seen the Games Workshop model, the business model, in a followed suit. The first one that immediately springs to my mind is um, Battlefront, with how they've come up with you know their own rules, their own miniatures, and for lack of a better term, it's well they they put it right on the masthead of their website. The you know Flames of War, the World War II miniatures game. 
almost like Games Workshop says, you know, the Games Workshop hobby. Yeah, I I'm hesitant to um, to ascribe the Games Workshop model, if there really is such a model, to you know to everyone who um, just figures out a successful way of marketing a product. You know, it's, it's probably it's probably more to it than just a a single model that's being copied. I, I do think that. Um, this kind of integration and the resources and, and you know, uh, manpower it requires uh, is available only to uh, a declining number of companies. Maybe we can count them on the fingers of one hand globally. And you've got two things going on, of course. You, you've got this saturation of the marketplace with so many products that um, what used to be considered success is now an unreachable goal for all but that handful of big companies. You know, I can I can remember when it was certainly feasible right. that um, a small indie publisher might sell 10, 20, or even 30,000 games uh, of a title. If you do that now, um, you've hit the home run of all home runs. I mean, if you sell 1,000 now, you're doing well. Uh, if you sell 2,000, you've got a major hit on your hands. Um, so the ability to to reach the market i think has declined significantly just because of the fragmentation and the saturation of products in the marketplace to the point where the only people really who can reach those kind of numbers are the ones who have the budget the marketing the presence and that that integrated product line like you're talking about i don't know if that's a games workshop model or if that's just an intelligent way of uh, of reaching a limited and probably not growing customer right. base yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, there's only so many of us, and we each only have so much money to to spend. But you know, you've got Kickstarters coming out every week. Some of them succeed, some of them fail, some of them really succeed. And I mean, that's that's a whole other business model unto uh, unto itself. Let me let me offer just a, a quick story. Uh, about a decade ago, I pitched an idea to Battlefront. Um, for a Napoleonics game that would be you know, kind of done a la Flames of War. And um, they were lovely to, to discuss with. They, they kept me in the loop through their deliberations. I have nothing but good to say about them. Um, in the end, they decided no. Um, they were totally fair about it, and it was a reasonable conversation the whole way through. But their, their reason in the end was they didn't feel it was a way to expand their customer base. They thought that the number of people who might play Napoleonics was fixed and was only going to decline and that they weren't going to be able to, to recruit new customers. And without recruiting new customers, they thought this was an, a, um, a loser. You know, there was, there was no way to, to risk the kind of investment that they were, they were mm -hmm. going to have to risk to do it. And I think that says a lot, frankly. That was a decade ago. And... Um, you know, there are only so many historical themes, World War II being one of them, maybe Ancients being another. Um, there are only so many historical themes where a company like them probably could take that sort of risk that right. they could recruit new customers. I get, you know, I get emails or, you know, posts all the time from you know, enthusiasts of my games and customers who say, when are you going to do a game for the Russo-Japanese War or, you know, Renaissance Italy or something like that because, you know, they, they like my games and that's their favorite period and they want me to do something. And the answer is never. You know, come on. I, it's like 17 guys in the whole world who, who do those periods. I mean, at most, 
I might be able to do a sort of PDF that's a right. variant of some existing game, and you know, I'm I'm damn sure not going to risk twenty thousand dollars, you know, and to do a print run and all that kind of stuff. Um, right, right. There's yeah, there's just no way. And that might be that kind of attitude might be a result of the type of. Well, it might be a result of the environment in which we find ourselves that some of the, you know, you know, just take a look at GMT games, granted they're, they're board games, but you can just about find at least one game in their catalog for just about any conflict you can think of. But, but remember that they, right. they pioneered what we now call crowdfunding long before there was a Kickstarter, right? You know, companies like them had those pledge lines you know, like you know, if we get 300 guys who will prepay or 500 guys who will prepay we'll do this game and i know i know enough board game designers to mm -hmm. know plenty of stories of games that didn't make it um i had a, a friend who invented a really interesting mm -hmm. game about the indochina war you know the french in vietnam um i thought it was a terrific game but it never got past that that developmental stage because they're never going to get 300 people and i think about that right i mean right. 300 it Worldwide, there's not there's not 300 people in the entire on the entire earth who are willing to pledge whatever it was 50 or 60 bucks for that game. Right. But what I'm getting at is, I wonder if the off the shelf access for a number of minor, for lack of a better term, conflicts has kind of taken away some of the do it yourself mentality for some of these, mm. you know, lesser conflicts. You know, and again, that that's kind of the, you know, for better or worse, I, I think GW and the other companies that are, you know, do it all with, you know, with one company, for lack of a better term, maybe they're part of that also. And there, you know, there's been a, you know, discussion, this particular aspect of this discussion has been raging back and forth since, you know, the days that, you know, the early 2000s when, you know, people were griping back and forth on the miniatures page that, you know, historical games are hard to get into because you've got to do all this upfront heavy lifting, but the fantasy and sci-fi stuff, it's all provided. And I wonder if maybe that's permeating, maybe permeating a little bit more to the point where there is all this stuff that you can get off the shelf that, hey, what's one more, you know, what's one more, you know, minute niche conflict for someone else to develop? Well, two two thoughts there. I mean, first, I think around the early two thousands is when you begin to see this trend towards smaller games, um, and that require less figures, less space, and less setup time. And so you get this this huge number of World War II skirmish games, and then you've got games like Saga, where you've got maybe two dozen figures on the table, and those are historical games, right? right. So they they you know some smart designers did you know grasp that trend and did try to provide historical games that fit that that changing dynamic of the marketplace and they did well um, and some of them are quite good games um, there's not every period can be done that way obviously but um, those who did I think enjoyed success the other part of the, this dynamic is that um, up to now in this conversation we've been talking about the business end of the hobby we really haven't been talking about you know the people who do this purely for pleasure as a hobby um, and aren't expecting to sell a thousand copies or even ten copies. You know, they're, 
they're just satisfied with creating a game for their own enjoyment or the enjoyment of their friends. And if that is all you're you're planning to do, then you can go hog wild. You know, you could do a game about absolutely anything with absolutely any kind of mechanics. It can be as weird as you want. Um, and there's really no limits. And if somebody wants to give you $5 or $10 for a PDF of it, wonderful. Maybe there's a couple dozen guys in the world who will, but that was never really your mission, you know. And I think that for a lot of guys, that's good enough, that they are DIY sort of gamers. Um, and that makes sense that they are, right? So much of this hobby is DIY. You've got to paint your own figures. You've got to get or make your own terrain. You've got to come up with your own scenarios. So why not also make your own rules? Yeah, and that seems to be the, the bridge too far for a lot of folks. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and claim to be anything like a, da- a game designer, but, you know, I have, I have, you know, tapped away on a keyboard and scribbled notes on a on a legal pad and come up with you know some derivative stuff of course like anybody does and I've come up with some original stuff that could be tweaked but yeah I, I wonder maybe that's just too much of a time sink for some people because to really to really design a game properly and to do the play testing to figure out what works that that does take a lot of time and that could be time spent right you know playing something else you know, at the end of the day, if if you really wanted to, you if you really wanted to, you could be a miniatures war gamer without painting a single figure, and still have a fully painted army. You right. know, buy you know buy all your painted figures, buy all your assembled and painted terrain, and all you have to do is set up and play. And you know, maybe maybe the game design is maybe that's a bridge too far for most folks. I guess. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I. I... I think everybody invests in this hobby what they have to invest. You know, I, 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 I will happily spend a year or more designing a game rules, but I suck at terrain. You know, I am the last person, the last person on earth that you should turn to for, you know, <laughs> making a hill or, or, or a house or anything. I've got friends who do it, but um, I am happy to shell out the dollars and have someone who's good at it do it for me. Um, but generally, and this is just my snobbiness um, and my experience, um, I am not too impressed with other people's rules, with some exceptions. And I, you know, I shout out to um, the guys who are good at it. But in general, I think, what the hell? I could do better than this. <laughs> well, I mean, that just reinforces my, you know, one of the uh, foundational points of my personal gaming philosophy is that this hobby has something for everybody, and you know. I myself, I'm not a big fan of painting miniatures. I do it because it has to be done, but I really enjoy making terrain. You know, just just by by example. So. Um, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. It, but again, I think that the the heavy lifting with our hobby is game development. In all honesty, in my opinion, because that's where, at the end of the day, if you've got a halfway decent set of rules it's easier to have a good time with rules that are not ambiguous and flow well and, you know, give a good represent representation of what you're trying to model on the table. And, you know, if, if you've got clunky rules that don't really apply to what you're trying to model on the table, then that detracts from the entire experience way worse than a poorly painted figure. Because because sure. at the end of yeah, the day, you know, I can take a, you know, I can 
step back from the table and see a bunch of poorly painted figures, or I can just see a bunch of painted figures, which is good enough. But you can't step away from the rules. Yeah, although I've been to plenty of conventions where um, guys have set up these um, these incredible dioramas and this terrain that's just mouthwatering and um, glorious thousands of beautifully painted figures, and the rules are crap. Um, the you know the, the rules are you know just somnabulant and. Um, Nonetheless, a lot of people seem to be enjoying just sitting there looking at this gorgeous figures and gorgeous terrain, and you know, they're, they're getting pleasure from that. Um, so yeah, there's an aesthetic component that I don't think we can underestimate. Um, if, if, the, if the aesthetics didn't matter, then at least half of us would just be board gamers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of hard to... I guess there's like a sliding scale of what what gets you excited about gaming for everybody, and... You know, the miniatures, you know, for me, I've always said the play's the thing. I'm happy to play with with unpainted plastic or metal, and I've done it plenty of times, and I know that, you know, <laughs> there's, I'm sure there's someone that's swerving off the road <laughs> as they listen right now in shock and horror. But, yeah, it's, it, it's not the end of the day yeah. for me if I field a unit that's not completely painted, but I want there to be decent rules, so... Yeah, I agree. I, I, mean, it, I think that's um, that's the interaction right. between you and your opponent, um, and that's ultimately what matters. That's that's what you wrap your brain around, um, assuming you're playing trying to win or trying to think about how to win and so on, that you, you wrap your brain around the game uh, as it's written. Um, so a couple other things I wanted to talk about was to compare and contrast basically... The and other other podcasts have done this. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in also. From our impressions as gamers based in the United States, the the big differences between U.S. gaming and U.K. gaming, and how that might affect the the industry, for lack of a better term, in those two countries. And I think one of the big things is the U.K. shows versus American conventions. And the, those two terms are not interchangeable because, from my understanding, in the UK, it's more about a weekend shopping trip, for lack of a better term. In the United States, mm-hmm. or even an afternoon yeah. shopping trip, due to the short distances involved in the country, you know, in going back and forth across that country. And in the United States, it's a weekend of gaming that you might buy some stuff at. Yeah, I think I think for most people that's right. Although not for me. I mean, for me, it's it's a weekend shopping trip. I'm I'm gonna go to Fall in in a couple of weeks, and I'm I, I can't tell you the last time I played a game at a convention, but uh, I do go there to see what's new and maybe pick up some some bargains on the flea market and stuff like that. But yeah, I agree with you that the way they're organized is uh, is different. I've got a, a number of British gaming friends and playtesters. Um, one of them told me last year that. Uh, he was trying to organize a new war game show and was actually having a lot of trouble finding a weekend to put it on because they were trying to find a weekend mm-hmm. that didn't have at least one other war game show. And I can't imagine that problem in the U.S. You know, the, 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 there's gamers per square mile in Britain must be astronomically higher than here. Yeah, I think part of it also is they've got a, you know, community club, you know, community gaming club, uh, culture, for lack of a better term, whereas I think it's a lot looser here in the United States. You might have some folks that you know meet in people's basements and and whatnot. And the majority of my gaming has certainly been a, of that style. 
but there are a lot of people who right. the only gaming outlet for them is their you know is their store and it's not as organized as as the clubs in the UK well yeah I mean Americans tend to have much bigger houses than Brits do um, you know, my wife is British um, I've, I've I've been, you know, spent some time in Britain and people generally have, don't have the space that Americans do. Um, and, and the distance, of course, means that typically in the U.S. you've got a guy who sets up a game in his basement and calls up his buddies and say, hey, how about Saturday we do the battle of whatever? And um, they come over and play that game as opposed right. to let's see who shows up at the club next, you know, Friday right. evening and, and, and they'll pick up a game. That also goes into the the shopping trip aspect of the shows in the UK where if you are and admittedly most of the companies that are trading in this industry are you know one man shops in the garden shed as they would say over there or basements here in the United States and you know it's it's not much for them to go to these smaller shows and you know see if anybody buys the 18 millimeter Napoleonic scenery that they've come up with and are casting in their own home. I have a funny story to share with you. Um, a German gaming friend of mine um, would go to Britain every year um, for DBA tournaments. He was a big DBA fan. And um, because wargaming is sort of frowned upon in Germany, um, he would take the opportunity to do some shopping and go to Nottingham and so on. He would come back. He would pack, you know, he would bring two suitcases and only pack one. Right, so he's carrying back a whole bunch of lead, basically, in you know, in his other suitcase. And he went through, and I think it was Manchester Airport. He was he was leaving, and he got into trouble. They were scanning the bag, right, and all this metal starts. It's a bit like that scene in Spinal Tap with the cucumber and the trousers. You know, all this metal starts flashing, and those alarms go off, and and the guy, you know, says, "Well, what if we go out here?" Then and opens up the suitcase. And he opens it up and pulls out a pack of these figures. And he goes, oh, 28 millimeter Prussian Grenadiers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the airport security guy was a gamer yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, the very, very, the likelihood of that happening in the United States is significantly less, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Yeah, it's those guys, you know, at, at some point, you know, GW was just one guy, you know, bring it, you know, while well, making chess sets, actually. You know, at, at the very beginning, the Games Workshop was a, was a guy or two making chess sets and checkerboards and backgammon boards. And eventually they became what they are now. And everybody else at one point was one guy. But they've got... There's maybe not an incentive, but there's no disincentive to, to start something. Whereas in the United States, they're it's tough going in the United States because you know to get your stuff out in front of people. Yeah, there's the internet, but at the end of the day, you're you're going to have to get in front of people, and the distances involved yeah. in this country are so vast in comparison. Yeah, and um, one one notices pretty readily also when you see photographs from British shows and and you compare them with, for example, the HMGS you know, conventions. Um, you know, the average person at a British show has brown hair and appears to be sort of 35-ish or something like that. Well, you know, the average person in the photo at an HMGS convention uh, either has uh, not much hair, like me, or uh, has gray hair or white hair and appears to be more like closing in on retirement age. Um, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember going to the HMGS cons when I was young and everybody else was young. 
And I still see kind of the same faces. You know, we've all got less hair and more wrinkles um, and have added a few pounds, but um, it's kind of the same guys. Uh, There are very, very few new faces. And the hobby here, the historical tabletop hobby here, from what I can see, is not growing. Yeah. The exception that proves the rule, I guess you could say, is, in my experience, the recruit show uh, just outside Kansas City in Lee Summit, Missouri that used to be held twice a year and is held once a year now at, at my alma mater, Lee Summit High School. And, you know, it, it started as a show for the school's war game club and it continues to do to be that. It's the school's war games club that puts it on and there's such a great energy and there's lots of youth and there's young people playing historical games and young people playing fantasy and sci-fi and everything in between. And the caveat to that though is the people running the games and maybe it should maybe that's just how it is you know the the older guys are going to be running the games but uh yeah it's maybe if we can get some more interaction at that level at the local school level you know maybe that'll help maybe there's a a rick Priestley out there somewhere in high school right now and he just doesn't know it yet I am the, uh, some of your listeners know I'm a college professor, and I am the campus advisor for the Strategy Gaming Club. Mm-hmm. They found me, <laughs> and, and there, was about, there was about half a dozen of those guys, and one of them was one of my students in one of my history classes, and walked up to me after class, kind of, you know, like looking to the left, looking to the right to see if anybody's listening, and then said, hey, professor, are you a gamer? <laughs> So, yeah. So so yeah, there are a few new new guys out there, but I you know I don't see them at conventions. I don't really know what they're buying. Um, we don't. I, I took some donations from a bunch of my gaming buddies for stuff they didn't want to give to these youngins, um, and then I didn't really hear more from that. I, I don't know if they they regarded it as sort of weird artifacts or or curiosities. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The uh, club that we use uh, for our monthly. Uh, game meetings here is populated with a ton of very young guys who play magic and other card games and some board games and you know they are young Mm -hmm. enough to be our sons and uh, they all sort of tolerate us in our corner with our one historical tabletop game and they kind of keep their distance because we're weird. Well uh, I wonder and in full disclosure I've not completely read Rommel yet but I wonder if there's enough if they are into board... Now, when you say board games, you're t- probably talking like the Fantasy Flight style board game, not SPI yeah, yeah. style. Okay. All right. Well, I'll shut Correct. up. Correct. Because I was saying maybe there's enough enough board game elements to Rommel that there could be some... You know, that could be in, in a, you know, a crossover there or crossover opportunity there, but maybe not if it's not the GMT style board game i guess it would still be there still be the barrier to entry of course of having to collect and paint your figures or terrain and so on those cards you could just use the cards yes yeah you know at at the end of the day they're just markers right that's my philosophy but you know if you go online and um if you sort of scan around uh you'll see that there's among the kind of you know, older generation of, of tabletop enthusiasts, there's a real resistance to that concept. You know, it's not just a marker. It's it's a scale model representation of something. And, you know, if, if it's just a marker, then why don't you go play a board game? I'm, I'm, very, I'm very liberal on this point. I mean, for me, you know, a model of a tiger tank or a counter that says tiger tank I, work, either works perfectly well. I like looking mm-hmm. at the model better, but it doesn't change how I play the game. Right. And, you know, you know if you're playing 
veteran wargamer bingo at home, get your cards out because I'm going to mention commands and colors. You know, mm-hmm. I I happily play mm-hmm. commands and colors both with the blocks and with models, mm-hmm. and it's a great sure, game yeah. with models because uh, you know you use larger hexes and you can cram a lot of figures in that hex and before too long you look like you've got a battle going on and the only time I ever played it was with figures yeah yeah and but at the end of the day you know people still say it's a board game well that's that's a discussion (laughs) that's a discussion for another episode and I do have plans on doing that but anyway yeah I wonder I wonder at the end of the day if there's anything that we can do as hobbyists to to get more younger interest in the historical aspect of, of the hobby now something I've noticed is guys my age you know I'm I'm 42 um oh crying out loud no I'm 43 geez I, <laughs> I'm for I'm officially in the mid 40s now um you know guys you know 45 to you know 35 to 45 I know a lot of guys that have started with GW like I did and have gone to historical and I wonder I wonder if they're just not getting to the conventions to provide some of that anecdotal antidote, for lack of a better term, to your experience, or, or what? Yeah, and, and this could be a case that the organization that runs these conventions is simply in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, the, we don't know that the convention participation is representative necessarily of anything. It could just be representative. It, it, the convention could be just a very right. big club that happens to meet right. three times a year. And by that token, I noticed there's a... Are you familiar with Adepticon? Yes, I've never been, but I know what it is, yeah. Okay. My understanding is they are... Every year, they are getting more bolt action and more Flames of War and other historical games uh, being played at it. So, and from the photos I've seen, it's it's a pretty young crowd. I'd say the average age at Adepticon is probably in your late 20s. Of course, you just mentioned a game done in Britain and a game done in New Zealand. True. Yeah, these are not American games, right? No, not not all, not at all. I mean, we do, like I said earlier, we do have two two big companies that you know do it all, for lack of a better term, but they don't really do historical stuff. And and the thing is, we've got the pieces here in the United States because there are some company. There's a couple of companies that do rules maybe not that big and there's a couple of companies that do figures again not that big but there isn't anybody that does it does both of them in the historical realm correct yeah uh, and i don't know and, but i say maybe there's there's a niche there to fill but then again i mean not without the international audience and again the the dollar is relatively strong right now and, and shipping costs are outrageous so i i don't know what the answer is i guess yeah only about 22 percent of my customers are american yeah, so there you go, and and you mentioned that you're almost selling at a loss with the with the hard copies. Is, are you? Do you have a pretty hefty trade in the in the PDFs overseas then, or? I do, yeah, but um, for selling uh, small packages overseas, uh, I take a loss of six or seven dollars on each one. Um, I sub I subsidize. I shouldn't say a loss. I subsidize the shipping cost. You know, artificially reduce it at, at my cost and it cost me about six or seven dollars each mm-hmm. um, in each case to do that so um, I'm not actually taking a loss in the sense of losing money but um, I am taking 
I'm discounting the game that much just to get the shipping cost down to something less than its present level of insanity. Right. right. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything... With the current climate, I don't know if there's anything that can be done. Basically. No, I don't think so. You know, granted, there are great products coming from those companies you know, that are overseas. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I'd certainly like to see an American company that, you know, does it all. And I'd like to see an American magazine actually, you know, like a real actual published paper and ink magazine. Because I know there's a couple of guys that do like an online thing, but it's, it's not the same thing by any means. But mm. yeah, it's, I got myself depressed now. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's, it's good that there are, well, I, I don't know. You know, the two big guys that are doing in... that are doing it in the United States, Privateer Press and Fantasy Flight. I don't know if they would even be interested in that, or if their their way of doing things and the types of games they design are so divergent from what's a classically historical approach to wargaming. I don't know if they. I I think anyone who's smart. Um, in the publishing business, uh, doesn't care so much about content. They they just care about a product right. that people want to buy. And I'm not I'm not saying that to be snarky at all. You know, I I, I work with publishers in other fields because of my scholarly work and and because of fiction that I've written and so on. Um, so I I get it. Um, there's no reason why they should care really what's between the covers as long as it doesn't offend anyone or get them sued. What they really want is something that will sell. So if you could pitch an idea to them that does seem like a winner uh, economically, and if you've done your homework, then I'm sure it could. I'm sure it could happen. Uh, I just don't, off the top of my head, have the product that 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 would be. And and bear in mind that for a small business like me, you know, at the moment, I do everything um, from initial writing design to answering questions to shipping you know i i you know take stuff to post the post office i you know arranging photography absolutely everything web maintenance etc um to expand um is probably impossible without hiring someone which would then cost more than what i would reasonably get from expansion so the only thing i could probably do is try to pitch an idea to some other country, and then that would turn over all the intellectual property to them, control of the product to them, and 90% of the money, of course, to them. So there's not a whole lot of incentive for a guy like me to do that. I've got my little niche, and I'm probably better off just staying in my little niche, but knowing full well, that means I will never be one of the big guys. Absolutely. It's, I don't know, maybe just need... I'm currently taking applications for Mr. Moneybags to to, to bankroll to bankroll a, yeah. a United States company that's gonna be able to design games and produce miniatures. Yeah, but I mean, if someone else if someone else pays the money, then they have right. a, they have every right to demand control of the product, and whether they ought to or not. Um, I'm a control freak, you know. I I know exactly what I want. And people are gonna, people are gonna blame me for anything that's wrong with the product. So I'm, I might as well at least have all control over the product. Um, and you know that means control over the expense, taking the risk, but also control over the profits. 
um, and the future investment in the next product. So for me, it's just better to stay smallish. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how to do this and uh, I don't necessarily know how to do other things. I've always wanted to design board games. I've dipped my toes into those. I've got a bunch of ideas for them. But the money, the the additional requirements in storage and in shipping are, are just, you know, they're off-puttingly complex. And I just decided, nah, I, I'm going to keep my day job yeah. and uh, carry on as I've been yeah, doing. I, yeah, I guess, that's, I guess that's where we find ourselves. Um, no, there's no solid answer to it, I guess, at the end of the day. It's just how this is the way that the the market has evolved and I guess that's just how it's going to be but uh, that's okay we've still got great products coming in from other countries and we've got some small voices out there in the United States making good stuff and I'm, I'm definitely appreciative of those uh, among the small voices Sam yours is one of the best and I, I, I certainly appreciate what what you are doing and I hope I'm sure you're going to continue and I, I hope you have continue success speaking of that how's how's rommel doing oh well, well first of all thank you um and yeah rommel had a great launch um a little bit too good we we actually broke the website yeah um <laughs> on the on the opening on the opening day it was incredibly embarrassing we were down for about four hours um because there was too much volume of sales <laughs> so an embarrassing but a good problem i guess um so yeah um it was, it was good to to get it out the door, you know, by the time you reach that stage, you've been working on something for two years and you just want just to be, to, to be done with it, you know, just get it out there. I, I haven't, uh, I haven't heard any serious complaints. Um, the feedback seems to be good. There's guys on the forum who are jazzing up a bunch of scenarios for it. Um, so yeah, it seems good. Uh, you say that, is there a possibility of a scenario book then, or...? I've never done a scenario book for any of my games. Um, I tend to uh, just leave that to the community online, and I contribute when I feel like it. I added a new scenario uh, last month, a Normandy scenario, and then the guys have done on their own at least a dozen more, um, including some interesting stuff like a Spanish Civil War scenario. Um, there's a Greek uh, scenario. There's um, a bunch of um, kind of uh, unexpected, um, like early war, you know, France 1940 sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't do codexes. They're the closest I've I've come to doing supplements where the card sets for Blucher. Right. And I don't really think of those so much as supplements as just kind of completing the product because the product almost sort of indicated that would be available. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't do scenario books. Okay. What's What's next in the in the pipeline then? Or can yeah, you no, talk I'd, about it yet? no idea. No, I. Um, I've got a non-war game idea. It's a it's a sports game. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we'll see. Um, there are a bunch of things on my eternal to-do list. Uh, one of which is grid-based. Um, one of which is not. So I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about it because we're in really early stages. Sure. Sure. Well, on that note, uh, Sam, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I, I look forward to getting free jumper on the table. I look forward to getting Rommel on the table. Uh, it's just a matter of <laughs> when there's so many things I want to do, but, uh, you know, one of the downsides of doing this podcast is I'm much more aware of 
of what's going on in the industry and I uh, there's a blog post about that somewhere I guess I need to write and get it out there but anyhow thanks again I appreciate it uh, best of luck and or continued success with Rommel and the rest of your games and when you do make moves towards something new I hope to have you on again to talk about it be my pleasure as always folks if the war game you're having isn't any fun you make it fun that is all Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.